This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. This is what we see with every technological cycle is that people are going to iterate. Airdrops for just people who touch your product before your token was live, right? That's the, that's the norm today. Um, that will change to something that more closely maps onto what we mean by loyalty. And it's probably different for different applications, but eventually we'll find something that tracks the thing that we actually care about, which is that I want to reward loyal community members. That's what people really want to do. Airdrops don't really do that very effectively anymore. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, we are back with two of my favorite people in crypto. We have Tom and Hasib from Dragonfly. Welcome to Empire, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. You guys, um, a month ago, Haseeb, uh, yeah, Haseeb, you came on with a VTL back in uh, maybe January or February in this year, and you were just, maybe it sounded a little tired. I know you don't drink coffee, but you were kind of just like, there's narrative exhaustion in crypto. I don't know. We were coming off two years of just a crazy market. Um, and then you guys wrote this kind of depressing piece about a month ago. Layoffs are coming, batten down the hatches. So Haseeb, I want to pick on you to just kick off this podcast uh, you tell me how you're feeling these days. Are we exhausted? Are we excited? Are we tired? Are we pessimistic, optimistic? How are you feeling these days? Well, I'll tell you, markets seem pretty exhausted. So obviously we've had uh, a pretty choppy month since the collapse of Terra in, in May. Uh, there, I mean, the macro picture has started to pick up a little bit. Actually, stocks have started to recover a bit, but crypto hasn't come alongside it. And so what you're what you're broadly seeing is that uh, you know before May we were talking about narrative exhaustion, now we're talking about really searching to try to find what narrative, if any, is there that's going to sustain crypto. It seems like right now um, we're we're entering into a different cycle. We've already seen a number of companies starting to get down rounds. We've seen Coinbase institute a full-on hiring freeze as well as rescinding some of their outstanding offers. Um, we're starting to see the very first inklings of people running out of money. The interesting thing about crypto startups in particular is that they raised so much capital over the last year. I mean, there were tens of billions of dollars that flew into uh, crypto startups, which means that even when you enter into an environment of tighter capital and harder to raise money, uh, if you've raised a lot of money from your previous uh, fundraise, then you don't really need to lay anybody off. You don't necessarily need to tighten the belt and you don't need to raise a down round. You can keep going for a while until you actually run out of money or until you actually start hitting product market fit. But if you don't get there, if you don't get to either of those two, then at some point the shoe drops. So in crypto right now, when you're, when you're monitoring the news and you're seeing like, huh, it seems like there's still a lot of fundraising announcements that are happening. It seems like the money's still flowing. You know, a lot of these fundraising months ago. So we were just, you know, uh, monitoring the news and someone was chatting. It's like, man, it looks like all these startups are still getting funded. And we're like, oh wait, that one. Yeah. We talked to them like four months ago. So the, um, the reality is you're not getting a real-time picture of what the funding environment looks like unless you're actually on the, either you're raising money or you're yourself on the, um, on the funding side. So it, 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 is, it is a choppy environment right now. Now, why am I not totally depressed? I'm not totally depressed for a couple of reasons. One is that fundamentals in crypto are still okay. So they're not, they're not looking terrible. This doesn't look anything like it did in 2018. If you remember 2018, 2018 was like, oh my God, it's all over. 2018 was like, never mind, no one cares about any of this. It's all bullshit. Like nobody was ever going to ship anything. And we were, we were all fed a lie. That was what 2018 felt like. And 2022 feels very different, right? 2022, all of these applications work. They're all there. You can touch them. You can feel them. You can interact with them. There's an enormous amount of brilliant people building real stuff in crypto. And the amount of capital that's gone into the space means that um, there's going to be a lot of people solving a lot of hard problems for many years to come, regardless of whether or not, uh, you know, prices or macro or whatever ends up improving over the next year or two. And, and the thing, of course, this was a macro driven sell off and macro will eventually get better. Right now it's bad. Right now it looks ugly. Right now there's not a lot of demand for risk assets, but 
that stuff, it waxes and wanes depending on the overall macro picture. Right now, inflation is high. When inflation goes down, almost everybody I know expects that the Fed will eventually pump the brakes and interest rates will go back down, in which case there's going to be more demand for stuff like crypto. So in the long run, crypto is going to be fine. I don't know anybody who thinks that like, yeah, crypto's over and it's time to move on and you know go back to you know uh, optimizing advertising or whatever. Like 2018. Yeah, 2018, it very much felt like, oh my God, did we get this wrong? Did, did, was I just completely wrong on this? And like, I'm going back to my job and I have to like come crawling back to them. Now it's, uh, now it's just how long is this bear market going to last? We're obviously right about crypto. It's just, is this a, uh, how long and how deep of a bear market is this? So maybe Tom, I can pick on you to just expand on Hasib's thoughts about the choppiness of the venture, um, of the venture markets right now. And just knowing that like maybe a lot of folks in, in our seat and a lot of the listeners were getting this like maybe delayed stream of, on venture. So maybe in three months, we'll see the real state of what venture looks like today. But if you could just give us a glimpse inside the eyes of someone, you guys just raised a $650 million um, fund, I think three. So I'm assuming you have a bunch of dry powder. Like what does the venture market look like today? And like how bad is choppy? And give us some like maybe mm. real world examples of this. Yeah, I mean, I think um, people think of venture as just like public markets, but like smaller and you know private, and it's like not true. They're in fact, I think, pretty you know discreet, um, and therefore they kind of lag each other, and they, they're not quite you know, sort of sort of one to one. I mean, I think um, as far as um, venture goes, I think seed stage is still getting done. Um, valuations, I would say, have come down 50-60% compared to a few months ago, which sort of you know mirrors, mirrors what we see in the public markets. Um, it's more kind of growth stage and later stage where we've already seen a lot of you know, markdowns. Tiger announced today, you know, they're, they're down like 52%, and we've already seen people you know, doing big down rounds in sort of growth stage. Um, but it's also just a lot more painful of a conversation to have, right? Like, if I'm an entrepreneur and it's my first time getting funding, you know, for me, I, I assume sort of going with whatever, whatever the market is, um, and I'm, I'll just sort of go with the best you know, term sheet I can get. If I've already raised a seed round at some crazy valuation from, you know, six months or a year ago, and now I expect to do an A because I'm running low on cash and I expect a markup, um, you know, oftentimes those rounds won't get done or it'll get done, uh, you know, in a very painful way with the, you know, the, the investors that you don't necessarily want. And so it's not quite, you know, sort of sort of one to one there. Um, and I agree with Asib's point as well, where there is also this weird dynamic where um, teams that, you know, raise a lot of money um, in their seed or in earlier stages last year, they might not need to raise for a while. I've seen teams that have, you know, in their investor statement, their, their burn rate and sometimes the burn is like, 10 years or the runway is 15 years or something insane. And you know, obviously they'll be hiring and that will come down, but like there isn't sort of that, that sort of pressing need for cash. There's also this weird dynamic in terms of like private public market com compression where, um, you know, doing private over the past two years has, has in some ways felt very easy if you have access to great teams and great deals and, and great products. Um, I think, um, because in part because the public market was so strong and and would you know for a great product give you a great you know valuation when when things you know launch a token or go public or get acquired or whatever. Um, now we're seeing I think great products, um, great companies, great great teams um, that are public that have a token or you know have tons of usage and have a real product. Um, you know their public market you know, uh, uh, asset is is trading on like a uh, you know a pretty pretty uh, pretty cheaply compared to where you might see something in the private and so it's it's harder to you know, justify doing a seed or an A when you look at sort of the public market comp and you say, well, like, you know, why do you think you should be valued at, you know, half of this existing public market, you know, dominant product or sometimes even the same price. And so I, I will, I am curious to see like where that sort of starts to blend and maybe we start to see um, some of these funds get allocated into the, the public markets. Um, there's also this weird dynamic with just so much dry powder, I think, um, sitting on the sidelines in specifically in venture, we see these you know, new funds, including ours, get announced, you know, every week, every month. Um, you know, Standard just announced that it did 500 million. Uh, this is Andreessen, $4.5 billion, you know, fund. There's a lot of these funds coming out and a lot of them want to do early stage. You want to do, you know, sort of seed, um, but obviously not everyone can. You can't deploy, you know, a $4.5 billion fund into, you know, a bunch of, you know, $30 million deals. So I'd be, I'd be kind of curious to see how, how that dynamic plays out as well. Yeah. There's kind of this spectrum of leverage that exists in venture, and it kind of swings back and forth between the founder and the VC, depending on when we're in a bull market or a bear market, right? So at the very top of a bull market, the founder has all the leverage. Not giving up a board seat, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking whatever valuation I want, I'm, I have any VC, every VC and every angel 
uh, coming at me to to invest. So I, I get like my pick of the litter uh, in the bear in a bear market, right? It's complete in like the heart of the bear. It's completely flipped. I'll take any terms along that spectrum. Where good we question? Are right I mean, the first approximation for where the balance of power is between entrepreneurs and uh, sources of capital is interest rates. Actually, interest rates you can think of as being the price of money. And when interest rates are high, that means money is expensive. When interest rates are low, that means money is cheap. Whenever interest rates go up, that means that the um, the counterfactual return that you can get uh, investing into something that's less risky than investing into a startup is higher. And so the, the, the startup is not going to demand as high a premium. So generally speaking, when the when the when the spread between potential investments collapses, and it's like, hey, you know, I could go invest in this thing in the public markets, which is worth just about as much as you know, what, what, or like, you know, twice as much as what you're asking for. But, you know, if, if you really knock it out of the park, you're, I'm going to get a two X, which is not that great. Um, that means that venture capitalists are going to have more power than entrepreneurs. Um, at the end of the day, it's really about the, um, the growth rate of the industry. If the industry is growing really rapidly, then, um, you know, th that incentivizes more entrepreneurs to come onto this side of the market. Right. And when the, when the returns of the industry are, are suffering, and there's, there's, there's less uh, incentive to invest into the marginal startup, then that's going to shift the balance of power more towards the capitalists. And so it kind of waxes and wanes over time. Like there's, it, it's, it's never, it never just stays one way, right? Because both sides of the market are, it's a market, right? It's a totally open market, meaning that you can, you can have more venture capitalists show up. You can have more entrepreneurs show up. And they both get attracted by the price signal of what it's like for startup funding. When, when rates are at rock bottom, Really what, what that means, what, it, what the world is telling you when rates are rock bottom, it means that we have no good ideas. We, we don't know of good ways to put money to work. And so we're happy to fund almost anything, right? As long as you can produce some marginal rate of growth, like right? we're so starved for growth in the world that we're willing to pay almost anything for a good idea. That's what really low rates means. Now, when rates are higher, that means like, actually, we have a bunch of good ideas. And, you know, if you have some other new good idea, it's like, it, it better at least hit this margin for us to be willing to invest in you. Um, and so that, especially if you're thinking about starting a startup, um, ironically, is one of the most important things to be thinking about is like, what is the risk-free rate? The risk-free rate is going to affect a lot of whether you want to go work for a big company that's working and actually putting money to work, as opposed to starting a company, which is finding a new way for growth to happen, as opposed to investing already in a way that we already know how to grow the economy. So then how much of this, how much of this bear market right now is predicated upon what the Fed does? Like how much of... I think I think maybe it's a two-part question, which is, are we just dependent on the Fed? And are we, is like going long crypto right now, just trying to fight the Fed? And then the second part of that question might be, how do you think about like how far into the bear market we are? We're maybe six months down from the tops. Does that mean we're 50% of the way through? Is this like a long bear market? But maybe if we could start about just like, how dependent are we on the Fed? I'd say yes and no in a few ways. So one, we're dependent on the Fed because obviously the you know, fear of interest rates and the rising of interest rates is a lot of what has spooked the crypto market, as well as growth assets across the board. So it's not just crypto. Crypto's correlation to other growth assets has been at historic highs since this macro cycle. Um, also, we've only, it, it's worth remembering that we've only ever seen crypto in an environment of rock bottom interest rates, right? Crypto, Bitcoin was literally created after the great financial crisis. Ever since then, rates have been extremely low. And we may be moving for the first time into a high interest rate environment as we haven't seen in decades. So now we'll see whether or not that actually comes to pass. But um, if, if the worst happens, it may really, really disrupt the way that we think that crypto works and the, and the role that we think it plays uh, in, the, in the context of broader financial assets. So in one sense, yes, we are dependent on the Fed, um, as we, it's, we've already shown ourselves to be. Um, another way of answering that question, though, is to say no, because like the Fed is also not operating in a vacuum, right? There's a common cause to why the Fed is operating the way it is. And the common cause is just the actual macro environment, right? Which is what's going on with inflation? What's going on with the war in Ukraine? What's going on with supply chain shortages? What's going on with COVID? All of these things are affecting the Fed. And that is, you know, through the Fed, it is affecting crypto. But you could argue that it will, the, that is also the picture that's affecting crypto, which is just like the, the, the slowdown in, in uh, the, the increase in inflation and the slowdown in the, in the, in the global economy. Um, now, more broadly speaking, uh, the other thing I'd say, okay, is, is crypto totally dependent on the Fed? In the sense that, like, can crypto not recover unless the Fed, you know, uh, jacks rates down to near zero again? And I think to that, I'd say the answer is no, clearly no. Uh, crypto can grow if we 
start building great products and start getting adoption and start solving some of these deep fundamental problems in crypto. The reality is that in the last cycle, um, we haven't solved that many big problems. We've, we've done a few things in the last cycle. Like you really do the accounting of like what happened the last two years? What did we actually accomplish in the crypto industry? So DeFi really took on its own. So that was great. We got DeFi, um, at least gen one of DeFi, right? So we've got trading, we've got borrowing and lending, um, but that's kind of about it. Not, not a whole lot else is really working besides trading and lending. Um, then and when it comes to games, we've got like some kind of janky games. We don't have a whole lot. Honestly, like the games in crypto are not that good yet and not that many people are playing them at absolute scale, right? So there's maybe maybe like on the order of a couple million people playing crypto games. In the context of what real games look like, a game that has 2 million users is not a real game, right? That's like, okay, it's a tiny, tiny, like a tiny mobile game it has 2 million users. Um, and then beyond that, there's been a bunch of layer ones and a bunch of layer twos and, you know, a bunch of things like that. But like the throughput and the actual scalability of these blockchains is still pretty meager. You know, even the very best of them are on the order of, you know, hundreds of transactions per second, which is just not what you need in order to sustain a world scale improvement in what we want for blockchain adoption. So the reality is that, like, I think if you look objectively at what's happened the last couple of years, we've still got a long way to go before this stuff is ready for mass adoption. And I think we were getting a bit high in our own supply and uh, about, about how much progress we'd actually made in the last couple of years. Once we get farther along and we actually hit the milestones that we're trying to hit, I think crypto is going to grow. I think crypto is going to do great. But these are hard problems. That's why it's taken so long to try to solve them. So I think it'll just take more time. Tom, um, you're really deep on the product side of things. And this is kind of a trope at this point, but like bear markets are when great products are built and really good founders double down and uh, good VCs fund really good projects that end up taking off in the bull market. Just piggybacking on what Haseeb was saying about like, there are still a lot of existing problems before talking about what you guys are excited about. What are some of the big problems that like now that things have cooled down, we've had six months to maybe like breathe a little bit and just say, okay, the last bull market was crazy. What are some of the big problems that you see uh, that we still need to fix? Yeah. I mean, I think within within DeFi, at least, I think as Haseeb was sort of mentioning, um, I think the past two years has in large part been about um, giving you, you know, sort of permissionless leverage and permissionless you know, reflexivity to people um, in the crypto market. And that's a large part of what a lot of this stuff was used for. And I think, you know, I'm not as as down on this concept as I think um, a, a lot of people are. I think this is sort of like one of the, the core faults of, of Bitcoin and, and why we see a lot of these smart contracts proliferate is like, it, it's in some ways not super useful to have just permissionless cash without sort of permissionless financial services to go alongside it. And that has sort of crippled Bitcoin in, in, in some ways. And I think having sort of a truly sort of self-contained financial system for some sort of permissionless, you know, store of value um, actually is like pretty essential. So it's it's sort of like we're, we've built, you know, the Tesla Roadster where it's like, it's kind of a toy and it kind of works, but like it's self-contained and it's sort of end to end. But I think that in and of itself is not necessarily enough. Um, what we sort of see as the vision for DeFi and what I think it needs to be, you know, successful um, is to sort of facilitate real economic value and real flows um, in order to, um, you know, do something in the real world that generates some value um, and and sort of underlying that. And I think that's sort of what we've seen in the shift in terms of um, what's been happening in, in DeFi. Um, it's a shift away from these, you know, super leveraged, super reflexive kind of games to um, things that might look more productive or more useful in a bear market. So um, I just, you know, thread the other day talking about, you know, what's working in a bear market, what's what's not working in a bear market. And I think the things that we've we've seen in terms of like you know, metrics in our performance are um, real world lending um, facilities, so things like Maple, things like Goldfinch, um, things like TrueFi, um, even makers real world assets. You know they're making tens of millions of die against um, things like invoices and other types of real world collateral. Um, it's things like uh, you know different types of financing services that you might want in a bear market. So um, Porter Finance, for example, one of our, our portfolio companies. Um, they just did a bond issuance um, through uh, Ribbon. So instead of having to sell your tokens at the bottom of the bear market for cash, um, you can top into people who are willing to you know, lend you assets um, or you know, lend you cash um, you know, uncollateralized uh, for you know, facilitating some sort of uh, you know, real world economic value. Maybe you need to pay people, you need to pay contractors, you need to you know, pay rent, whatever. Um, I think that whole space will actually continue to grow. Um, we've also seen people, I think, uh, lean more into uh, uh, you know, some, some of these structured product platforms as well um, that don't necessarily need you know, huge amounts of leverage in the system to actually sort of function. So like all the DOV platforms, for example, are actually seeing large net inflows um, in kind of these assets. So like, you know, like a ribbon or a friction, they're seeing 
um, you know, all-time highs in terms of Ether, in terms of Sol being deposited in the system, people looking for yields um, in, in a bear market. But ultimately within DeFi, I, I think it is sort of about how do we actually make um, products and financial services that um, are going to be evergreen and long-lasting and not only really useful when people want to you know, get leverage on their on their ETH, or they want to trade some you know random you know long tail new token. Um, but it, it's sort of about uh, surfacing something a little bit bigger. Um, so I think within DeFi, that's that's kind of where I get excited. Um, and there's obviously many different components within there. Um, beyond that, I think one sort of I mean I think you can you can talk about you know gaming or NFTs or something. But one sort of pet uh, 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 I guess focus area that that I really love is sort of this. Um, sort of crowdfunding on, on steroids um, idea. And I think we sort of saw like the first inkling of this with Constitution DAO, where it's like, hey, you can spin up a smart contract um, and within 24 hours, you can raise $40 million from people all around the world to go do something. If that's maybe try to buy a copy of the Constitution or maybe that's try to buy a golf course with something like Lynx DAO or you're trying to buy you know a co-working space with Empire DAO. It's still obviously janky and I think it's still in this really legal gray space right now. But you know, you occasionally see those sort of um, moments of clear product market fit, um, both you know, working in, in product, but also as, as, a, as a VC, where it's like, oh shit, like people really want this. It's not really built to do the thing that it's supposed to do today, but like it's clearly really highly desired. I think we saw ICOs being sort of like the first example of this, where it's like, oh yeah, global permissionless capital markets are like actually amazing. Um, maybe not sort of the best direction of that capital. There are a lot of issues with the way that was structured, but clearly there's something there. And so I'm actually really excited to see that space mature and take off and like, you know, basically give everybody access to, uh, you know, uh, f- different fundraising mechanisms that maybe, maybe they currently have. And so um, in my mind, that's also like a really promising area uh, for, for crypto um, is, is basically, you know, being able to have global permissionless capital markets. Yeah. When you, I actually just want to go a little deeper on one of those use cases, which is the, uh, the Porter Finance um, ribbon, like convertible bond issuance. I saw you tweeted out like, red emoji alert, like big moment in DeFi history. Is this because it unlocks the other side of capital markets, which is like debt? Um, a lot of things have just been equity uh, driven in in, uh, in crypto capital markets. Is this deal such a big moment because it unlocks the debt side of this in DeFi? Yes, exactly. Um, okay. I think, you know, we're also seeing a sort of a similar trend even in non-crypto in terms of like venture debt, um, you know, being a more attractive source of funding for a lot of these teams. You know, why would you want to sell your equity, you know, um, when at as lowest you know, price ever um, when maybe you could raise debt at a reasonable interest rate and use that to sort of fund yourself if you um, see signs of growth and you see a way to sort of, you know, eventually get to a higher valuation. So it's like, you know, you don't want to uh, buy the top. You don't want to sell the bottom. It, it applies to companies as well. Um, and so you know, the ribbon porter thing um, is a very um, simple example of that where, you know, today it is a convertible bond. It is over collateralized. Um, but you know, in the future, you can imagine this being you know under collateralized, backed purely by you know the promise of the DAO. It could be backed by um, you know cash flows from the DAO. A lot of these DAOs do have real revenue streams. It's not just their token inflating and and you know them counting that as revenue, but it's the people who are using these protocols paying fees into the the protocol treasury and the DAO having control over that money. And so you know, right now these amounts are not huge. We're talking millions or tens of millions of dollars, but. Um, I think you know, at a global scale, these things will be absolutely massive, and um, there's going to be you know better ways to use that treasury than just having it be sitting there. So um, there are going to be teams that pull through this bear market by you know finding more innovative sources of of funding rather than just like you're know, trying to trying to sell tokens on the on the market. Yeah, it's interesting because just historically, I mean, maybe outside of minor financing, debt has been pretty non-existent uh, form of financing in crypto in general. Hasib, do you, do you think that debt financing makes up a much is this the bear market where we see debt financing really play a role in keeping maybe some companies alive? So debt is always hard to do for startups. And most of most of the things that are happening in crypto are startups. Um, debt is, is, is an easier tool yeah. to invest into things that have uh, reliable cash flows, right? So if, if you are a protocol that's actually operating at scale or a DAO that's operating at scale, you have real revenue, you're underwritable, then you can say, hey, um, I'm good for this. Right, like in in an absolute nightmare scenario, I can still pay you back, and um, you know we, there there are other um, um, so we're 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 also uh, close with the DebtDAO team, and DebtDAO is another guy, another team that's also trying to build a sort of on chain debt instruments for DAOs, and uh, the idea is that you know if you if you hook in directly to the revenue source of the DAO, it's kind of like you know in in the real world, normally what you would do is if if you're not being paid back by a uh, by a debtor. 
then you'd take some kind of lien on their property or the lien on their business. And, and you'd have to go through the legal system in order to actually enforce your claim. But in a DAO, in principle at least, you can you can have a mechanism like that in the smart contract itself, such that the, the protocol is actually not able to generate any revenue until all the debtors are paid back, or sorry, the creditors are all paid back. Um, that kind of mechanic, you know, a lot of what we are thinking about in crypto is how can you remove trust from the system or make trust unnecessary within the system? Now, there, there's always, of course, some risk that the protocol itself could blow up, in which case, okay, yes, that's a, that's a risk that the underwriters are taking on. But the same thing is true in the real world, right? If you, if you, uh, you know, give some, if you, if you give a loan to Enron, okay, then you're screwed. It doesn't matter, you know, how good your covenants are. So there's, um, there's a, I, I think this is part of the broader evolution that we're seeing in capital markets is that there's some mechanisms for which crypto can just do things unequivocally better. Um, it's exactly the, the same fight that FTX is trying to fight with the CFTC of like, hey, if we just remove the middleman and we remove all this other cruft and nonsense, we can do things much more efficiently, make things 24-7, make things real time, make things, you know, we don't have to go call somebody in the morning and say, hey, are you still good for this? Um, the same thing can, can absolutely be applied to a lot of markets, including debt. Mm. Is this interesting for only, is, is this only interesting for on-chain companies? Um, right, so like, let's use an example. So I know debt is not as common of a financial instrument for startups, but crypto startups are different, right? Like OpenSea did $386 million of revenue in one month this year, in January, I think it was. So that's a, that's a shit ton of revenue for a startup. Like normal startups don't generate 386 million in revenue in one month. So will, I guess, two, like two part question. One is, will these companies like the, like CFI, whatever you want to call it, like OpenSea, Coinbase, BlockFi's of the world, Gemini's, uh, use debt financing in this bear market more frequently than we've seen in the past because they are generating a lot of uh, revenue? Or is it more just like, you'll see these DeFi protocols, like um, what is this one called? Porter Finance, where it's like, bonds for for DAOs. I mean, OpenSea, at least in their case, OpenSea just raised so much money. I'd be amazed if they need to raise debt. Um, but also... I don't think OpenSea actually needs yeah needs money right now. But. Yeah, they're also incredibly profitable, right? So if you're profitable, like you probably don't need, you probably don't need debt. Like OpenSea is <laughs> yeah. not a, uh, you know, it's not a very intensive business. Like it kind of, to some degree, it sort of runs itself. Um, whereas there are a lot of other things that require an enormous yeah. amount of R&D, in which case... They're, you know, if you're, if you're trying to build a ZK rollup, it's like, okay, that thing is not going to be done for many, many years. You know, even once it's in mainnet, there's still so much work to do. So that kind of thing requires continual R&D work, even in lieu of having on-chain protocol revenues, right? It's quite likely the ZK rollups in the early days, they're probably not going to have particularly high fees or, or meaningful fee payments until they hit scale. So that's the kind of thing where I would expect that it's more likely than not that they would want to find alternative forms of financing if the market doesn't come back in time. Um, but for the very best projects, I mean, they'll always be able to raise equity financing. Yeah. I, I want to go through a couple of things that are maybe like advice for founders. Um, I know a lot of found, actually there are a uh, couple of my buddies, uh, you guys have invested in, and, uh, they said that you guys are consistently one of their most helpful, uh, VCs. So, uh, back, back pat to you guys, but, uh, you guys gave this, like you guys wrote this thing on medium, which is. I think a lot of folks found really, really helpful. And you had three different buckets. You said, um, one, if you've recently raised, now is the time to focus on what's important and cut the fat, both in product direction and in personnel, if you've overhired. Next is there's gonna be strong calls for regulation. Some of the regulation will be bogus. Uh, there will be more incentive than ever to offshore the innovative stuff. And the third is the market will be less speculative for a while, especially as retail investors are no longer driving as much of the flows. Many narratives will get reset. We will not see the same old stories play out. So I want to actually touch on all three of those, uh, maybe starting with the last one. And Tom, I'd pick on you for this. What are some of the narratives that happened in the bull market, this last bull market that maybe have been reset where people are saying, Okay, maybe maybe this didn't make as much sense. Maybe maybe this uh, idea, like when we were throwing shit at the wall and it worked in a, bear, in a bull market, maybe this actually doesn't make sense as a product strategy and as a as a company building strategy. Yeah, I think you know a lot of the stuff I mentioned around DeFi is very much in this bucket um, of you know uh, maybe people don't want to get a ton of leverage and maybe you know using your token, uh, you know, it's sort of you know, sort of ridiculous ways to you know, offer that is not really productive. It's sort of just a, you know, Ponzi-like game at the end of the day. Um, but I think uh, NFTs are actually like sort of a story around sort of the meta shifting um, many times over the past few years where we went from, you know, NFTs being sort of this you know, very small, you know, part of what happens in crypto to sort of this, you know, celebrity-driven NFT culture, um, maybe in sort of early 2021. And this was sort of when 
Nifty Gateway was super dominant and you had like Grimes giving, you know, selling your NFT and people thought, oh, NFTs are going to be sort of a new monetization method for you know, artists and brands. And that's going to be sort of what it is. And then I think over the past year, we've seen this shift towards, you know, basically the sort of CryptoPunk inspired 10K profile picture collections and people swapping these collections and, um, you know, a lot of sort of variations on a theme there. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily going to be sort of the story around NFTs forever. I think there's um, a lot more that you can do with sort of, you know, on-chain you know, scarcity NFTs being um, sort of one example of it. But I don't think the future of NFTs is always going to be someone dropping a new 10K PFP profile or PFP collection <laughs> and people getting excited about you're it. That's not saying? It's not yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the meta will, will sort of constantly be, be, be shifting. Um, and I think yeah. it's true in DeFi as well, some of these other, you know, categories as well. Um, I think also we've just seen sort of the story around um, layer ones and layers two, layer twos themselves, you know, shift a lot. I think if you think about, you know, what was sort of you know, popular in, in 2018, 2019, um, there were a lot of promise around some of these like next generation blockchains. And then in practice, what we've seen is, you know, the most dominant platform for blockchains over the past you know, year has really been a lot of these, um, you know, EVM based blockchains. It's people basically taking something like Geth, putting a new consensus you know, mechanism on it or speeding it up or tweaking it somehow. Um, and that wasn't really something I think people were talking about or predicting um, back in the day that like these would in fact maybe be more popular than a layer two because um, they're you know cheap and they're fast and you know the bridges are sufficiently good to sort of move things back and forth. Um, I don't know if that's going to be the case forever. I think we're big EVM bulls, but I think it's going to take a while to sort of um, you know even improve on the EVM and like make it yeah. um, you know better than what it is today. But um, that meta could also sort of shift over the next few years. So um, I, I think you know it's it's easy to sort of get married to how the world is today, and I think that's kind of what we what we've seen um, in previous cycles of people you know, really getting sucked into Bitcoin and believing Bitcoin is going to be the thing and everything's going to be on Bitcoin. And maybe that was like, a, I think, a very credible thesis in, in 2016 um, when we saw, you know, Ethereum was having so many issues and like um, Bitcoin has longevity and, and et cetera, et cetera. But like you kind of see what happens to those people when they get you know married to that thesis and sucked into it and not able to sort of reassess reality and reassess the situation. And um, I think we'll probably see a similar shift over the next few years of people who got you know married to sort of the you know 2021 uh, mentality of of um, how, how they see the world and not able to sort of reassess and, and look for fresh new ideas and, and changes in, uh, in the market. All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge. For anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to beat Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices, uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. There are, I know I said I was gonna touch on those three things that you guys wrote about in the Medium post, but there's a bunch there I wanna pick on. So, and Tom, I'll just go back to you. Do you think the layer one wars are kind of largely over? And like, does this competition move to L2s or like, what do you think about the layer one wars just as we move forward in the bear market? Um, I don't think it's over. I don't know if it will ever be over because I think there's always probably going to be a huge market premium on somebody claiming they have solved some huge problem with blockchains and yeah. wanting to launch their own layer one. Um, but I certainly think the um, bounds of the competition have, have changed quite a bit. We've seen, again, EVM just become super dominant. Really, you know, the only competitors that that you would think of are um, are like Solana and sort of the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, but even those, if you look at like percentage wise, are are you know pretty small. And even those are also looking for ways to integrate, um, you know, uh, EVM or, or EWASM compatibility. So it's like not necessarily um, you know uh, sort of truly discrete ecosystems. Um, I think like as we were sort of alluding to, um, I, I think EVM still requires like a lot of upgrades to make it work. I think it's if it's JavaScript like in that way, right? Where like you know, JavaScript did not get replaced by a totally new language. It evolved over time. We made stuff like V8 that made it just run so much better. We learned how, like, you know, improve parallelization, improve throughput. We added, you know, higher level languages to, like, you know, make it more usable by developers. And it was probably a similar story for, you know, the EVM as well, where it's sort of this 
this base that has um, this sort of lendiness to it that's going to be really hard to get to get away from. Um, and instead, we build abstractions, we build improvements, we build ways to sort of just make it more usable over time. Um, so I don't think the layer one wars are, are, are over yet. I also, frankly, would not be surprised to see more specialized blockchains come out. And I think that's actually kind of what we've seen a few examples of over the past year is, um, you know, the idea is that, well, Ethereum block space is more valuable than, you know, uh, some other random you know, EVM chains block space because you have security and you have co-location, right? Um, and I think um, for a lot of applications that maybe don't care about either of those where, Maybe I don't need nation state level, you know, uh, security guarantees because I'm, you know, a video game, or maybe I don't really care about co-location because the people who use my application are not using other applications, they're only using my own app. Um, it probably actually makes more sense for me to run my own chain or to do something else and get those fees down and really cater to my own users. And kind of what we've seen is actually a um, sort of cross blockchain market for block space where um, if I'm a dApp and I you know, really have my own sort of user base, I will shop around for the cheapest block space available that sort of fits my, uh, you know, uh, uh, where I stand on the on this uh, uh, spectrum. Um, and that's kind of what we've seen. Like we saw like, you know, Audius move from like XDAI to Solana. You know, we saw DYDX, you know, move to, to, to Starkware and now potentially you know, moving to Cosmos. Uh, we've seen, you know, Axie move to, uh, you know, Ronin. Um, and so it's like for, for these kinds of applications that have really sticky users that might not have the same security guarantees or need for co-location as other applications, I suspect they will probably continue to shop around or maybe even roll their own blockchains that are more tailored to their to their needs. What, what does that mean, shop around? Uh, because if I, I, I thought someone would, like if I'm Audius, I'm basically saying, here are my needs, here are my technical needs. Uh, just like you would do if you're like, we're recording this on this thing called Riverside. It'd be like, here are my needs. Uh, I've got AWS, I've got Google Cloud, and I've got Azure. Uh, let me do a demo of all three of them and see which one's better. Um, is it not the same? Is it more like, hey, uh, Solana is going to pay me 100K, Avalanche will pay me 250K? Like, what does it mean to actually shop around? Um, well, I, I'd say, well, it seems like, it seems like, talk, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'd say, um, it, it, I don't know, it's, it's a little while ago, but if you guys remember the uh, Amazon HQ2 uh, episode, I think that's a good analogy oh, yeah. for what, yeah, yeah. what yeah, it's yeah. like to build a blockchain today, which is that. It's a little bit of shopping around. It's also a little bit of like in the process of shopping around. You get to know people. You get to understand like how much support you're going to get. You also understand the technical yeah, yeah. needs. And like, look, you're not going to talk to, you know, Boise, Idaho, because you already know Boise, Idaho is not the place where you want to put HQ2. But among all the places where you can see it working, don't, don't nothing against Boise. Boise is great. I'm sure. I've actually never <laughs> been, but I'm sure it's wonderful. Um, but among the places you're like, look, I know, like, look, my options are basically Solana, Avalanche, or Polygon. And all right, why don't, why don't we all talk? You guys can each make me an offer and tell me how bad you want me, and then you know I'll pick my favorite. And that and that and that is how the majority of really dominant projects that are in the shopping around phase. I mean, we saw this with the Terra collapse. So after after the Terra collapse, a lot of the biggest projects on Terra did exactly this. They started going talking to all the BD teams from all the big protocols, and um, they decided, hey, you know, I, it, it, but it's a combination, right? It's not a single thing. You don't just literally take the highest offer because, of course, most of the value of being on a chain is not just what you get in tax incentives, quote unquote. It's it's the overall picture of like, what's the quality of the people there? What's the marketing support I'm going to get? What's the blah, blah, blah? What's the infrastructure look like? All that stuff goes into a decision of where you want to build your application. Right. I mean, we saw Polygon launch their quote unquote uncapped fund to bring to bring folks over from Terra. That sounds like that's basically just an incentive fund uh, to bring folks over. So that's, um. and is it just money related or is it tech related or... Well, it's all of the above, right? It's multidimensional. People care about the tech. They care about the quality of the people. They care about the daily active users. They care about the spending power. They care about the TVL. And they also care about how much money you're going to give them and how much tech support you're going to give them. All those things matter. Are these like 250K checks? Is this like a million dollar check? What are we talking here? I, it, it, it depends on the quality of your product. So like if you're, um, I don't know, uh, what's, a, what's a blockbuster project? Look, if you're Stepin and Stepin's like, yo, I'm, I'm done with Solana. I want to move somewhere else. People are going to be throwing a lot of money to get Stepin to come onto their chain. Um, but if you're, you know, some marginal developer from some random country that most people haven't heard of, it's not likely that you're going to get anywhere near what Stepin's going to get. If Stepin said, I want to move to a new chain, how much money do you think they could get? Uh, I'm speculating at this point because I have no idea, but I would guess somewhere between five to 10 million. But it would probably be unlocked over some period of time. And it's like, you got to, you know, you don't, you don't get it all day one. It's not all cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll ask you two the same question I asked uh, Chow and Imran. They came on the podcast last week. Um, and I said, if you could build, if you had like a seed stage startup, like three amazing engineers, and they basically came to you and they're like, 
we've got this amazing idea and you're like, holy shit, that is an amazing idea. And they're like, yeah, but we don't know where we're building it. We, we need your advice and whatever you tell us to build on, we're going to build on it. And Chow, Imran didn't answer, but Chow was confident enough to answer live on the show. So I'd ask you two. I'm curious if you two agree on this. Wait, what was his answer? I can't tell you until you two, <laughs> until you two tell me your answer. <laughs> but it was a controversial one. I'll tell you that. Tom, what would you say? Uh, any, any blockchain that or layer two that Dragonfly is invested in, I think is a good choice. Um, That's such a cop-out answer, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly have not been in this position, so I've not thought that deeply about it. Um, but I think, frankly, like anywhere within the EVM ecosystem, like you know, Polygon, Avalanche, Aurora, Ethereum, even like a layer two would, would probably make sense. I think if I really cared about you know, like you know, future-proofing or something, I would maybe think about making sure, looking at some of the ZK EVM um, projects that are sort of um, in the pipeline right now, I think I'm, I'm pretty bullish on that as sort of the future of where scalability and where blockchains are going to go. And so um, maybe not building on it today, but thinking about how you're going to get there or, or be being uh, compatible with that in the, in the future. Yeah, my, my answer is a bit of a cop-out, but it's like, it depends a lot on what the application is. And like, I think people don't think about this enough as they sort of think about the chain as just like a community or a token or a price. But the question really is quite strategic about, look, if I launch this thing on this chain, who are my competitors on that chain? Like if, let's say you're building a lending protocol, okay? If you launch a lending protocol on Solana, it's like, okay, well, you've got Solend to compete with, right? Okay, do you, do you, how do you think you're going to do against Solend? And how much support is Solend getting from Solana Ventures or Solana Labs or the, you know, the Solana ecosystem? If the competitor, on the other hand, is something like Aave, it's like, okay, how much, Aave, how much is Aave dedicating to this chain? Do I have a competitive mode to be able to say like, hey, Aave is the biggest right now on Polygon, let's say. But uh, if I have my own token and I have my own go-to-market, I can get the support of the Polygon team. And I can potentially build a wedge to become the dominant platform on Polygon. Um, uh, whereas on Avalanche, you know, it's Banky. And Banky is, uh, you know, Banky has got a lot of buy-in from the Avalanche team. It's a native token. They've done their own liquidity mining scheme. So it might be harder to go to market against them. So uh, the details really matter. It's not just about the chain. It's also about what you're building and how likely it is that you're going to be able to take mindshare away from what's already there on that particular chain. And it also depends on, you know, to your point, like when we, when, you know, if you decide, it's, it's, to my mind, it's almost like deciding, okay, I want to build, a, I want to build this uh, restaurant and I've got, you know, amazing recipes in my restaurant. It's going to be really great. What city should I, should I start my restaurant in? It's like, well, it depends on the kind of restaurant. And depends on, you know, how, how many other restaurants are there like that in each of the cities? And also just where are you going to vibe? Where are you going to get support? Where are you going to be able to build a real community? And you might suck at doing that in Houston, but you could do it really, really well in Seattle. So it, it or in Boise. Boise might or, be your jam. Or you know? Boise. Like you can dominate a small market. That's, a, that's always an option too. <laughs> Tom, I gave you a layup, by the way, with, uh, with the question about like what's going to change coming out of the bull market. And, you know, we threw shit at the wall and it's stuck in the bull, but it doesn't stick in the bear. I wanted you to answer with airdrops because I know that you think <laughs> they're useless in a marketing stunt. And I might be putting yeah. words, I might be putting words in your mouth and going too far, but I'd love for you to share your thoughts around airdrops. Yeah, I'm actually uh, working on this, this your research piece right now, basically looking at you know, what is the activity of people who get airdrops and, you know, how much does their activity change proportionally to how much they receive in the airdrop? You know, are they actually going to be loyal and stick around? Um, and I, I think overall, like, you know, my, my feeling and some of the your early data is like, you know, I, I, I think people loved the Uniswap airdrop. It was this amazing story. It was this amazing thing. Um, you know, getting thousands of dollars for free for being an early customer, super, you know, delightful, and incredible, you know, branding opportunity that I, I think, you know, I was maybe slightly critical at the time, but I think I've come around on it that, yeah, you spent $150 million in, in marketing, but it's kind of a, a marketing story that you can't really even buy um, with, with money. Um, but now it's become kind of expected. You have people gaming airdrops, you have people get pissed if their airdrop is not calculated correctly. It's, and it's, it's just become, um, you, you see you the, know, optimi it's, it's, the optimism community was like, you're not allowed to sell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that would be a great airdrop actually, is you get a commemorative token that you can never sell, but it's a way to say thank you for being part of the early community. I'm sure people would love that. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of the question like, like, what is this for? Um, yeah. the story is always like, it's a way to thank the community. I don't really think that's true anymore. Um, it's a way to get early users to use the, the, the protocol. Well, then you should be explicit about it. You shouldn't sort of hint at an airdrop. It should just be an explicit project like liquidity mining. You should design it correctly. You know, it should be a grants program, something like that. Um, so it feels like it's kind of become this social expectation that 
if you have a product and you don't have a token, you better give a token to early users. But I think in practice, that just like doesn't even really it's, it's you know, kind of matter. Like NFT projects where it's like uh, the expectation became you have to give free things to your NFT project over time, even though that's a pretty crappy business model. Um, it's like if you launched a project and it's in DeFi, like I'm expect and I use it, I'm expecting my airdrop now. I think there's also there's an element of it that's just. Um, there's a there's a kind of running a strategy dry and then continuing to try it even though it doesn't work anymore. We see a lot of that in crypto, right? So like yeah. in, you know, obviously the ICO bubble was basically that, you know, writ large. And then, you know, in in the summer of 2020, it was liquidity mining where this felt like this magical way to have a token appreciated just do some liquidity mining program. And then pretty quickly people figured out liquidity mining doesn't magically produce value. And then you know, it became airdrops and airdrops are just this magical way to make things valuable. And then suddenly it's like, okay, it didn't work. There's the VE, VE model. Then there's the, you know, running, yeah. raising an ecosystem fund. Ecosystem funds became this magical way to make layer ones really, really valuable. Um, then of course there's the, um, you know, there's all this stuff around NFTs. And then there's 20% APY tokens became this, you know, really incredible thing. If you do this, your, your layer one is going to pump or your application is going to pump. Um, and, and the thing that we realized, like, look, the first one who comes up with this idea gets a lot of bang for the buck. It really, really works, right? In the same way that, um, you know, back when Facebook first launched, uh, you remember there was this thing where Facebook would import your contacts and it would email everyone in your contact list and be like, hey, come sign up for Facebook. And that really, really worked. That was incredibly effective. Um, if you're a new application and you do this, it's not going to work. It's not. It's just going to be spam. People are going to ignore it. And the same thing. Right. I mean, there's pretty steep diminishing exactly. returns, it seems like, for all of these. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Once once people kind of ride a particular yeah. marketing yeah. tactic into the ground, it stops working. But a lot of people are too afraid to to not do it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's a kind of um, you know just becomes like a best practice, quote yeah. unquote, that becomes solidified as like okay, if you don't do this, someone will get mad at you, or may, who knows, maybe your project would have been successful if you had done the airdrop, but because you don't. Uh, so because you do, you at least know that like, look, at least no one's going to get mad at me. But, uh, you know, to Tom's point, they get mad at you anyway, because the airdrop's not big enough or the calculation was wrong or you, you know, remove some people who look like fraudsters, but you also remove some good people or the fraudsters complain to you. Yeah. So it, it, it's very hard to win given that, um, you know, it's a lot of tokens that get expended in airdrops, but the, the actual um, uh, loyalty of most people getting the airdrop is not really there. And so I think what we'll probably what we'll see over time, and this is what we see with every technological cycle, is that people are going to iterate. Airdrops for just people who touch your product before your token was live, right? That's the that's the norm today. Um, that will change to something that more closely maps onto what we mean by loyalty. And it's probably different for different applications, but eventually we'll find something that tracks the thing that we actually care about, which is that I want to reward loyal community members. That's what people really want to do. Airdrops don't really do that very effectively anymore. Yeah, I am. Yeah, people tried to solve that by just VE, basically just locking people up. But you can't lock you can't lock someone in to create loyalty. Uh, technically, they might not be selling it, their token. But um, how do you advise companies who are who are coming to you? Okay, so I'm a I'm a founder of a Dragonfly Port Co. and I go, hey Tom, um, I need help with marketing. I need help with user acquisition. We're going into this bear market. Nobody cares about my thing. Um, liquidity mining doesn't create loyal users. VE isn't a great strategy. Uh, airdrops, you just told me they're useless. I can't go raise this $300 million uh, ecosystem fund. like, And I can't go run ads on um, Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm out of luck here. So what, what am I doing here, Tom? Yeah, uh, well, I am regretting investing in you now because you're seeking me for marketing <laughs> advice. Um, you're, you're so <laughs> negative that clearly we shouldn't have invested. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I think, um, you know, there is a component in here where it's like, there are no, no shortcuts to like building a great, you know, company or, or product. And I think, you know, marketing is sort of like, you know, kerosene where it can sort of help grow things quicker. But if you don't even have a flame to start, like this is really going to do anything. Um, I think from a, from a product perspective, you know, I always tell teams like you have to start small, smart, start focused, build to where the market is today. Um, I think a lot of teams have this very grand vision and they have this, they want to be a platform. They want to do all the things. Um, and then they launched and it's a really muddled, confused experience. There isn't really a great sort of, uh, you know, polished experience with good liquidity, you know, a, a good UI, like it's like everything that, that users want. You kind of have to start small and branch out. This is like classic startup advice, but we somehow forget it sometimes right. in crypto. Um, I think on the, on the marketing side, teams also, I think, come at it um, with the idea of telling the story about themselves. They want to talk about themselves and what they're doing and sort of they're shouting it out into the universe and expecting that people are going to notice and care. 
And I think that works when you're at scale, like people really do care about what's happening with Uniswap or people really do care, care about what's happening with, with, with Stepin. Um, but most of the time you're sort of small, you're like this little ant on the ground and you're shouting and you're saying, hey, like, you know, please pay attention to me. And I think in actuality, like if you want to do marketing in the really early stages of a, of a, of a startup or of a crypto startup specifically, um, you need to be thinking about how to tell a story that is bigger than yourself and then insert yourself into it. Um, so it's not just, hey, look at this cool thing that I'm doing, but hey, here's this cool part of the market. Here's this cool thing that's happening. Um, here's this, this you know, bigger story and we're a part of it. And um, you should be paying attention to us because we are also this really cool AMM that is doing something kind of similar to Uniswap or you know, whatever. Um, I think the other thing teams also get wrong is they want to outsource marketing. They think I can just hire like an agency and I'm, they will just do everything for me. And I think ultimately, like it's very unique to crypto is that there is sort of a, a um, cult of personality and sometimes around some of these founders. And the founders are the ones who are active on Discord. The founders are the ones that are active on, on Twitter. Um, they're the ones who are who are telling the story. And I think that is sort of what we seem to be the most, um, I think, potent way of, of, of narrative building is like, it's this founder who is on this mission or this, these founders who are on this mission. Um, and I think like, if you don't have that, um, like you, you probably know all the top founders of a lot of the top blockchains, a lot of top DeFi products. And it's not even necessarily true of like, you know, normal startups or products that you might use. You probably don't know the founders of a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, products or companies that you use day to day, but for crypto, it's, it's very true. And so you got to be in the weeds a little bit. Um, and in, in some respects, it's a, a benefit because you're actually talking to you know, uh, users, you're getting feedback from them. Um, you're, you're sort of having a really tight feedback loop, which is uh, the other really you know, key pro uh, part of, of building a successful yeah. product. I think that's really, really good advice that folks oftentimes forget, especially in the bull, mar bull market is go as niche as possible and capture a super niche market, right? And like you look at some, I mean, the overused examples are like Facebook started with college students and like eBay started with um, uh, collectibles or like, I think Craigslist started with like San Francisco meetups. It's like, go super, super niche and capture that market and expand out from there. Uh, going, going back to some of that founder advice, I'm curious, how do you advise founders who might, maybe they didn't raise in at the top of the bull market and they need to raise again? Um, BlockFi, I don't know if this is true or a rumor, so I won't like confirm it, but you know, they're, uh, I think they raised a 3 billion. It was rumored they were raising it like a 5 billion today, uh, came out and said that they're raising it like a 1 billion. Uh, so it's down between 66 to 80%, right? What, what is like the psychology of a down round? And how do you advise founders who maybe have to raise it a down round? But like the other side of this is if they don't raise it the down round, they go they go under. Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say is that there aren't a lot of founders who are there right now. You know, there, there's, uh, again, because so many people have raised so much capital, it's really only the very capital intensive businesses that need to raise money now. Now, eventually, a lot of companies are going to be there, um, but there's a strong impulse to not be the first, right? So I, I, can, I can guarantee you, if BlockFi is raising right now at a billion, uh, it's not because they want to. They are they are probably backed into a corner and they have to raise right now. And so they're raising at a very tough time. They don't have a lot of leverage. They're not fielding inbound demand, but instead they're going out to investors and saying, hey, I'm in a tough spot. I need to raise money right now. Um, the folks who are raising into a strong environment where there's actually demand from investors as opposed to their demand for capital, um, they're seeing much less aggressive uh, markdowns than the folks who are going to be forced to come out to market right now. And that's one of the reasons why the standard advice that we're giving to founders is, hey, cut your burn, extend your runway, make sure that you don't have to raise. Because if you have to raise, you are going to get very punitive terms compared to the person who is enticed to raise by getting an unsolicited offer. So, you know, back in the bull market, everybody was getting unsolicited offers. It was just, you know, the job of a VC was to go and think of, hey, who, who do I think is really interesting? And then go try to give them a term sheet. And in an environment like what we're seeing right now, very, very different dynamics. So the, the number one goal is like, don't get there in the first place. Don't be in a situation where you need to raise money. Once you do need to raise money, like, the, you know, over the next three to six months, we're going to see down rounds become more normalized. Being the first person to do a down round, it's like, it's very kind of walk of shame, right? Like there's, everybody's going to report on it. I mean, you can see how much glee there is in the market talking about, ha, 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 BlockFi, they're raising a down round, you know, it's over, blah, 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 which is whatever. Market's going to do what market's going to do. <clears throat> the reality is we're going to see a lot of down rounds of this, uh, of this size or, or even worse than this over time. Um, some of them are going to be quiet. A lot of them are obviously not going to want to announce just because down rounds are not sexy. Nobody wants to trumpet that they did a down round. Um, and so you're, you're, you're not necessarily even going to see a lot of the announcements 
come out in the public about these down rounds. Um, they might get reported on after the fact. Yeah. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the, the 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 reality is that the number one job of a founder is to keep the company alive until you can get to the promised land. And the promised land might be you know waiting until you get to the next bull market or until you ship the, that that one product or until you expand into this market that you think is going to help you dominate. Um, but uh, you do what you need to do in order to keep the company alive. And that may mean a combination of, uh, of, of, uh, of financing that may lower your net valuation, uh, but it also may mean, again, finding things to, to cut your burn, which may be letting people go, which may be cutting salaries, which may be you know, a, a lot of things that people have not even wanted to contemplate for over a decade. And, uh, but we'll, we'll start seeing it, especially in a lot of the companies in crypto that have been overfunded that don't really have product market fit. What is the psychology inside of a company when you raise a down round? Like, what is the kind of spiraling effect that happens? I mean, when, when you raise a down round, I mean, everything in venture conspires to make down rounds hard. And that's why most often when you see markets go down, instead of seeing a slew of down rounds, like if you're a public company, the moment the market goes down, you're worth less. And so everybody just kind of gets it all at once. It's one big kind of, kind of pill to swallow. It's like, oh, okay, well, people had options are down, people at RSUs, their packages are worth less. Um, you know, the, the executives have, you know, their net worth has decreased materially, um, but like it's done. It's done in a day and nobody has any delusions about what's going on in a public company. And your competitors are down the same amount, right? I'm Lyft and I'm down 40%. Well, that's fine because Uber Uber's down 40% too. So it's like- Yeah, and everyone, I mean, you hopefully. Hope, you hope, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you hope yeah. you hope that your competitors are also down the same amount, or maybe worth more than you. Um, but uh, in a, in a private company, when when the market goes down, um, you're still kind of in suspended animation. Everyone can sort of imagine in their heads that they're not underwater, or it's like, okay, well maybe if we raise our, our next round in two years and the market comes back, then nobody will be underwater and nobody has to take write downs and nobody is you know nobody's at zero. Everyone is still above their strike price. Um, and, you know, when a lot of people's packages, especially because, you know, in, in startups, people generally don't get RSUs uh, in the early stages of a startup. They often get options. And if you have options, then your strike price really matters. So if, if the company has materially decreased in value, literally, you might be at zero. Like if, if the company goes public today, you make zero, you make nothing. Um, and that can cause a lot of people, if they can actually do the math, to want to leave. Um, it also means that the founders own materially less of the company in a down round because, of course, the preference stack starts to really grow because the Series A investors get their money back, the Series B investors get their money back, uh, especially in a down round. Oftentimes, you see structure introduced into a deal. Um, so I don't think we've seen any of this in crypto yet, but there's a good chance that we will at some point, especially in the later stage stuff, that um, there may be situations where there's like a guaranteed payback to some of the later stage investors, uh, in which case it becomes really, really hard for the founders to even own enough of the company to make an exit material, even if they, they come out at flat. So the, all of that stuff makes it hard and hard, harder and harder and harder for all of the normal effects of a startup, which make everything at a startup accelerated. Everything at a startup moves faster. Everybody's more excited. Everyone's making money quick. Um, it goes in the opposite direction in, in uh, a down round period, which is why very often in a down round, you have to go out and make fresh equity grants. You have to go out and like kind of figure out how do we keep the incentives still working in the down round so that everyone's still incentivized. Oftentimes it means that the previous round investors might have to go down a bit just to keep the company alive and make sure that the, the down round investors actually feel like there's a cap table that's workable for the whole thing to make sense. So that's why down rounds are hard. There's so many things you need to solve in order to make a down round even work. Whereas in an up round, Everything's designed for up rounds, you know. Every, everyone's happy. You know, up rounds are easy. Everyone's making money. Everyone's exactly. Happy. Everyone's happy. Everyone's making money. You know, it's like ah, oh, maybe this, maybe that, but like fundamentally, it's easy to get a deal done. Down rounds are painful. Nice press release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Tom, do you have anything to add to that? No, I agree. I think um, we're actually I think, putting out a blog post sooner and hiring in a, in a bear market as well, and sort of talking about. I think the, the big issue is just around talent retention. Like as Asip said, like if you're doing a big down round, like just due to liquidation preferences, like your equity in the company as an employee might be like totally wiped out. You might be a zero at this point, um, or maybe it's down, you know, 80, 90%. Um, and I think when, when that happens, um, as, as a founder, you have to lean on two things. One is company culture. Um, have you built an amazing place to work with great people that are really motivated about solving, working on the right problems? Like, um, you know, I can say when I was at zero X, we had like actually zero attrition during the bear market um, up until like, you know, 2020 when people started to leave and start to build you know, new things and new products and stuff like that. But like, I think it was a testament to the fact that the people who were there really wanted to be there and they had a great time working there and a great time building new products. 
um, even if you know, maybe their their token grant was down you know, 80, 90% or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think the other component is just like, um, you know, prioritizing, you know, health of the health of the company as, as well. Like, um, if you, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to do some of these things, but ultimately I think it's better for people to, you know, take a cut versus have it busy at a zero and, and, uh, you know, have the company shut down or something like that. I think the last thing to just touch on here guys is, um, uh, one thing that one of you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, which is, uh, becomes difficult when you've got the private equity is, stacked really high or is um the value of the private equity is really high but then public tokens are down like 90 percent but you guys are vcs and investors and you you want to support the private side of things um, but obviously you need to return capital to to your lps right so how do you think about like when just capitulated public tokens become too enticing not to just load up on some of the public tokens well so it, it depends on the structure of your fund so um, our, our venture fund is constrained from investing into public. So we can't just go buy stuff on Coinbase. Um, now, that being said, I do think what you're going to see over time is that the market will equilibrate because it just it always does, right? That's how economics works. So if you wait long enough, eventually people who have unrealistic expectations of outcomes will start to reprice things and you'll see a different uh, you'll see a different regime with, with with respect to pricing. Right now, you know, like we said, some seed rounds are being priced much more favorably. So we're seeing things come down 50, 60% in terms of seed round pricing. But some folks are like, hey, I had a term sheet just two months ago at, you know, uh, 50 million, so I want 35. And some people, some people will probably get those rounds done. Um, but I think the longer you wait, I mean, again, assuming the market doesn't rebound, which I mean, in the short run, I'm not expecting any, you know, really impressive rebounds. Um, unless the market rebounds pretty soon, uh, eventually at some point people will just kind of get the message about what the new price levels are. And, uh, the same thing happened in 2018. It took a while to see the market adjust to the fact that like, Hey, yeah, the bull market's over. Uh, there, people are not expecting just, you know, automatically making money, investing in this thing at 50 or hundred million FTV anymore. And once, once we internalize that, the market is going to adjust. So in the seed round, it's easy because seed round, you've not, you haven't raised any money before. So starting at 20 versus starting at 30 versus starting at 40, it's kind of like, okay, it's just a number. It doesn't really affect anything. Um, like we said, it's it's in the later rounds where it starts to really affect things. And you've built up all this cruft that gets affected by a round being materially higher, materially lower than what you were otherwise expecting. But the reality is, you know, people are really, um, people are naturally really industrious. So in a, in a bear market, like what you find is that in a bull market, a lot more money gets raised, but it doesn't mean a lot more stuff gets done, right? Very often, a lot more money gets raised and it gets mostly wasted or just like spent on incentives that don't really go very far, or it gets airdropped to Tom's point. And uh, people like just start finding ways to spend money. But um, in bear markets, like, I mean, I, I would say that the last bear market was incredibly productive. Pretty much everything in DeFi was built in the last bear market. And um, people are just, people just have a lot of ingenuity. And the most valuable stuff, the most important stuff, the most important hires, the most important ideas are the ones you do first. So very often, that's another part of the reason why I'm actually not that worried that um, projects that we're not going to see as much progress because there's not as much money in the space. Because you know, usually the extra money that comes in in a bull market doesn't end up accomplishing a whole lot compared to what the kind of baseline of funding already accomplishes. What is the... Um Relative to 2018, we can wrap it with like uh, this two-part question here. I want to get both your guys' take on this. Um, the first part of the question is relative to 2018, 2019, what is this? What will the severity of this bear market look like? Um, and the second part is, I'm assuming you guys have a lot of founders who get on the horn with you and they say, Hazib, Tom, I'm trying to prep. I'm trying to cut burn. I'm trying to figure out what we should do with our product strategy and refocus the company. But like, how bad is this bear market going to be? Like, how long is this going to be? And so I think there's a maybe it's maybe it's just one question here around like the length of the bear market and the severity of the bear market. So, uh, <sighs> I can, I can, first? I can start and give Tom the last word <laughs> on the length and severity of the bear market. Like the only honest answer is that no one knows. The reality is that, yeah, but that doesn't make for a good, uh, that doesn't make for a good podcast answer. I see. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know, I know. But look, I, if somebody claims they know how long the bear market is, they're either bullshitting you or they're bullshitting themselves. Nobody knows, right? That's why it's a market. And, the the overall picture that I would get is that, look, unless we see some kind of exogenous shock or something that really, really takes off in crypto in a surprising way, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a lot of positive accelerants for crypto in the next six to 12 months. 
Um, right now, macro is dominating the picture, and most people who are looking at macro say, "Like, look, we might we might skate by without a recession. That's the most that we can hope for." But beyond that, like the picture doesn't look amazing. Inflation is still at you know roughly a forty year high. Um, supply chain issues are bad. There's a war in in Eastern Europe. There's you know China is just now starting to come out of these massive COVID lockdowns. Um, it's a bad year for growth across the world. So um, and we're we're seeing you know consumer uh, saving like household savings. Uh, down massively from where it was a couple of years ago, and interest rates are higher. So there's less demand for speculation, less demand for day trading. You know, all these exchanges around the world are seeing less uh, retail inflows. So all of that should tell you that, like, hey, it's not a great look, and crypto is somewhat reflexive. So I would say you should be prepared for this to be, you know, up to 18 months. Um, will it actually be 18 months? Who the hell knows? It could be. Longer than that, it could be much shorter. It could be over in two months, and then, you know, the war in Ukraine is over, and then it turns out the next CPI print is really low, and then it's like Fed's like, okay, great, we can avoid a recession. Rates go back down, and everyone's happy, and Bitcoin pumps. So it's impossible to say because it, it involves predicting so much about the world. Tom, any insights that are? Uh, I don't know if you have any more like specific insights uh, or a little more clarity, or uh, maybe a magic ball that tells us exactly where this goes. Yeah, to Tom definitely has that, but he just but he's been hiding it. it from me. Yeah, yeah, I got it. That's why yeah, everyone's got the magic ball. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> um, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I do also think it's you know, again, important to emphasize just like this looks very different than 2018, where there was like literally nothing. Instead, we have tens of billions of dollars in stable coins. These indexes are doing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a day in, in volume. Like there's real stuff going on. And I think one thing I also have to say is like crypto only ratchets up. Um, like if you look at talent inflows into the space, capital inflows into the space, Companies who are looking to integrate crypto into their product lines, uh, the amount of amount of funding, it just constantly kind of always itches, inches up a little bit. Um, and I think if you zoom out, like that overall is is super bullish. It's like um, you know, it's also sort of like like don't don't fade the youth. Um, if you look at sort of where you know younger people are interested, where they're excited about working, where they're excited about working on, where they're excited about using, it's crypto. And ultimately, you know, there's sort of this you know sad component that like society doesn't progress by like. You know, six-year-old people deciding that Bitcoin is great all of a sudden um, by by them you know, retiring and dying and young people replacing them. And I think it's it's really hard to sort of uh, it's really important to remember that and remember that like you, you know uh, the the youth are sort of the future. And I think that's kind of where uh, I, I see like you know, most of the the crypto you know, bullishness coming from. Yeah. Isn't there a really depressing quote? It's something like innovation happens one death at a time or something of that sort. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, Awesome. Well, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, as always, thanks for coming on Empire, guys. Thanks for having us, Jason. Thanks. All right. Be well.